This is a clip from The Hills by The Weeknd, which is currently the number one song on the Billboard Hot 100. Ten years ago, the number one song was Kanye West's Gold Digger, and ten years before that, it was Fantasy by Mariah Carey, beating out Coolio's Gangsta's Paradise. In many ways, pop music can sound and be structured in remarkably similar ways over decades, even over generations, but the way pop music is created the songwriting, the instrumentation, and the promotion and distribution has gone through a major revolution in the past 20 years. For today's Please Explain, we're talking about how pop music is made today with John Seabrook, a staff writer at The New Yorker. His new book, The Song Machine, Inside the Hit Factory, is published by Norton. I'm very pleased that it has brought John back to our show. Welcome back. Thanks, Leonard. And we always invite our audience to join in the conversation during these Please Explain segments. Our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. How does uh, Billboard choose the top 100 songs for the week? Wasn't in the past... Wasn't it based on reports from record stores? Yeah, it used to be. There are no record stores or hardly any anymore. It used to be sound scanning. It used to be sales, but it has changed a lot. It it includes streams. It includes uh, YouTube uh, video watching. Uh, They have all kinds of other little bit squishy sort of social media measures. And they whip them all together into a special sauce that we're not really totally privy to. And And in in the past, people doubted. Uh, all of the uh, the results, uh, but uh, they said that they some cases could be manipulated. I'm assuming that's true now as well. But is that number really important to artists and labels? I think it is. I think it's a very important marketing number to to say that the song is the number one song is validation in a pretty major way. I think is Billboard's 100 connected to radio's top 40 songs of the week. Yeah, they have charts. Billboard also does a top 40 chart. They, I mean, if you look at Billboard, you'll see they break the charts down into all kinds of different things. They have you know, the social media charts. They have the radio charts. They have the album charts. They, they have a, a number of many, many charts. But, the, but the, the one that's always been there is the top 100 singles, going back to the 50s. Do you think that music in this country and around the world would be different if the 1996 Telecommunications Act hadn't been passed? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I think what happened. What with, impact did that have? I think what happened with the Telecommunications Act is it made top 40 programming, which was fairly regional at that point, national, and it made the, the playlists national and even global. And I think it magnified the impact of the hits, it, in short. It took it took songs that had a certain amount of resonance in the culture you heard in certain places, and it pumped them full of steroids. And now you hear them everywhere. You can't avoid them. They're not just on the radio. You know, they're in stores. They're in stadiums. They're they're everywhere you go in in public life. Really, I think I knew who Adele was before I knew who Adele was. Yeah, because of right? that. I mean, you can't not hear them unless you live in a tree. <laughs> I think. You write that musical hits usually come from two different sources, R&B and Europop. Why only those two? 
Well, I I think what happened, I, the reason that in the, the book, a lot of the book is about the, the triumph of the Swedes as songwriters mm-hmm. and Norwegians to a certain extent as well. And I think what's happened as as American pop writing has moved out of America is that writers grow up free of the racial legacy of the R&B pop distinction, which here has as much to do with race as it does with sound, of course. And here, for a white writer to write R&B music is difficult, but in Sweden that happens all the time. And I think what, what's happened is the music you hear on the radio today is is a real combination of pop and R&B that wouldn't have been possible for Americans alone to achieve. In some ways, the story you tell begins with a man named Dennis Pop, D-E-N-N-I-Z-P-O-P, but with the last P also a capital letter. <laughs> That's a pun for Prince of Pickups, <laughs> because he was a DJ before he was a producer. And how did he st- get into the music business? Ace of Bass. Ace of Base. Ace of Base. Who knew when we were listening to Ace of Base back in the '90s, the sign that it was actually the beginning of a revolution in songwriting. But anyway, it was it was Ace of Base, the Swedish group. The song "The Sign" in 1994 was the top single of that year, and that put this fellow Dennis Pop on the map. But he disliked their music at first. He did. He there's a great story. He when he got their first demo. He put it in his car stereo and and listened to it as he was driving home from work, hated it. And when he tried to take it out of the stereo, he realized it was stuck. And his radio in the car was also broken, so he couldn't listen to anything else except for this demo for two weeks. And by the end of the two weeks, he suddenly realized that he was going to actually produce this song. And he said the fact that English wasn't their native language was an asset. I think this is true of Swedes in general in that... They're not so cut up on metaphor, uh, double entendre, the kind of things that we inherited from the songwriting era of the of the Brill Building and before. And they listen to the syllables rather than the words, and they match the syllables with the sounds. And if you're writing hooks, and what, that's what they are best at, I think that really helps you. Does that go back even earlier to groups like ABBA? Probably. I mean, ABBA certainly... They were, wrote a lot of songs with hooks. They had a lot of hooks. They had a lot of studio work, a lot of uh, ear candy. And also they were so... I think it was just the success of ABBA and the fact that it was possible for a Swedish group to be that successful around the world inspired the, the next generations. Let's listen to a little bit from Asa Bass's massive hit, The Sign. That's pretty much all electronic. It's all electronic. There's no real musicians there? Well, there's no instruments being played. I mean, they're, they're not being played live. Mm-hmm. They might be being played into the computer. Yeah, this is another huge change in terms of how songs are made these days. Uh, in the, Traditionally, songs were music and lyrics, and, and, and then the production came later. Today, the production really comes first. Uh, a producer makes a track, it, the instruments, the arrangement, the effects are all in it. Then they bring in what's called a top-line writer or a hook writer who adds the melodic hooks on top of it, and then the words are written. So it's, it's kind of backwards. 
Well, it's interesting that we've come to a situation like this because in some ways it's like the way songs used to be written. You'd get a, somebody write the music, somebody else would write the lyrics, uh, and then they'd find an artist and uh, they'd make a record. Right. And then along came the Beatles, I guess. Right. Uh, Beatles, and, yeah. and then for a long time it was the artist wrote their own material right. and they played their own instruments. Right. And now we have producers doing all of this stuff and then they bring – the the singer it could the, almost could be any singer, Nicki right. Minaj or anybody else to to do the the song. I think the difference you're absolutely right. I think the difference is that back in the Brill Building era, no one really minded that so much. It wasn't well. Carol King and and uh, they were writing good songs. They wrote great songs, and then of course Carol King went on to become a singer songwriter. But I think the difference is that today we we're coming out of the singer songwriter era. And the labels want to kind of use that, uh, the, hang on to that as a marketing tool. So we want to think that the singers wrote the songs. They want us to think that the singers wrote the songs because it helps sell the songs. But it sounds to me like humans are kind of being eliminated from much of the process. Are they only using synthesizers or are they also doing sampling? It's both, both samples and synthesizers. Well, sampling became a big issue in this country, a big copyright issue. Is it less of a problem in Sweden? Uh, well, I think it's been resolved pretty much, pretty much in this country too. Um, you know, the rights are usually cleared before the samples. I will say though, you're absolutely right. This technique of making songs really came from hip hop. You know, it really came from you know a producer and a rapper working together, and it was done in Jamaica and it was done in the Bronx, and it was kind of industrialized by the Swedes. That's really another big thing that the Swedes did. Well, that record, which was a big hit, the sign sounds kind of anonymous to me. Why? What makes it unique? I think that you you put your finger on it earlier. There's a Euro pop element to it, which works in the chorus. It has a big chorus. In the 80s, had big choruses, but it took for a, kind of a long time to get to them. These songwriters grew up with those. You know, I mean, in Sweden, you had uh, you had the band Europe. You know, the final countdown. There's a final countdown vibe. You know, in a lot of these songs, but the chorus happens much quicker. It happens in seconds 40 rather than, you know, a minute and a half. Uh, but I think the influence of the 80s is very much there, and the Swedes have, have, have put it into their music today. My guest is John Seabrook, who's been a staff writer for The New Yorker since 1993, and his latest book is The Song Machine Inside the Hit Factory. It's published by Norton. Uh, we are using it as a basis to discuss how records are made today, very different than the way they were made in the past, uh, to some degree, back to Tim Pan Alley, only now it's a Swedish Tim Pan Alley and some places in this country as well. Uh, we'll talk more about it, and if you have any questions about uh, what we're discussing, our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WMIC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. We are back with John Seabrook. He's written a book called The Song Machine Inside the Hit Factory. It's published by Norton. Uh, and uh, we are talking about how hits are made these days. Um, 
And uh, we invite your calls at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WMIC.org on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. We went into that break with something from the Backstreet Boys and came back with NSYNC. Um, I really can't see all <laughs> much difference between any of these people. Right. Uh, sometimes I can tell that it's a woman singing rather right. than a man. Right. <laughs> Well, and, and the drums, the drum parts all sound exactly the same to me, and they do not sound like drums anymore. No, they're not. Well, you can make percussion out of anything mm-hmm. now. Any sampled sound can be made. In, that, that was the Roland 808 machine's influence, I think, is to be a, you can make a bass line out of anything, and, 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 and they do. Now, Backstreet Boys and NSYNC have a link? Yeah, so the the Dennis Pop was the beginner, but the if if he was the Moses, uh, then the the one that got to see the actual he died young at age thirty five, but he had a disciple named Max Martin, and I, I use this sort of religious imagery, but you know there is actually a sort of religious vibe to all of this. These guys are are um, a very small knit group of disciples that have spread Dennis Pop's message or techniques around the world. But the most famous is Max Martin. He's written 21 number one hits, five behind John Lennon, and uh, uh, 12 behind Paul McCartney. So he's third on the all-time list. But His real name is Carl Martin Sandberg. Why did he change it to Max Martin? Uh, Dennis Pop gave him this very boring name, I think partly to help him just disappear into the woodwork. (laughs) You know, it's like a, a totally forgettable name. And one of his great skills is... And one of his great talents is he doesn't, he's a beautiful singer. He sings all the songs on his demos for the artist, so he can sing, and he could be the artist. But instead, he gives all the songs to other people, which is a pretty difficult thing to do, I think, if you're a singer. And uh, he's made all these other singers famous for songs that he wrote, and he and and he stays as anonymous as possible. And the name Max Martin is about as anonymous a name as you can have. Let's take uh, a call from Jorge from Brooklyn. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call, Leonard. Go ahead. Yeah, my question is, um, uh, I'm an ethnomusicologist, and I'm kind of wondering on a larger cultural level, how does, um, uh, Mr. Seabrook, um, how do you see this this cultural shift from um, uh, what is clearly black American music um, becoming this global phenomenon. What's the impact on a global level in terms of the songwriting and all this music sounding so homogenous? Uh, I think it's great for uh, people that like uh, the sort of high fructose songs that <laughs> come out where you have a hook every seven seconds. It's almost for like a short attention span culture, I think. So if, if you if you have a hard time spending three minutes with a song. Don't worry, these songs will keep you interested every seven seconds. In terms of like a progressive melody, or in terms of a song that has a, a movement distinctly throughout the whole song, I think we're, it's, it takes away a little bit from a song like that. George Gershwin and Irving Berlin probably turning in their graves. Yeah, or, or even Backrack, <laughs> I, I would say. Like the song Alfie. Mm -hmm. for example, wouldn't be a hit today on the radio, I don't think. It takes too long to get into it. Thank you so much for your call, Jorge. Thank you. Thanks, Jorge. Uh, Carl from New York City. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. uh, Love the show. Thank you. Um, I'm a songwriter. Been around for quite some time, and I just wanted to add how 
things have changed from the perspective of the songwriter in that, uh, you know, years ago we used to, the 70s, 80s, uh, write a song and do a basic demo. And uh, nowadays where it's changed, you know, pitching the song for other artists to sing uh, or for publisher to pitch. And today, uh, often uh, the response I get from music industry people has changed quite a bit, publishers and what have you, um, song pluggers. And, you know, a uh, typical response might be, love the song, great message, great melody, great lyric, um, really interesting chords, but it doesn't sound contemporary, mm -hmm. the track. You know, so where the focus is more on the track than the actual song. And, you know, I'm playing the politics. I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be a jerk. But I want to say, you know, I'm pitching a song. I'm not a big-time producer. You know, I don't have all the gear. I don't have, you know the finances i'm pitching the song so someone else would produce it and sing it if you love the song so much then what's the production have to do with it at this point is there no place now for just that old-fashioned song with a melody and clever lyrics no i think there is i mean i you know i think you know sarah Bareilles uh has sung songs like that i think ed sheeran I mean, there's always going to be sort of a backlash to whatever the mainstream is. So there's room, I think, for people that are doing it the opposite way. But I do feel that, um, you know, as as the caller is saying, production and, and the tools available to you through the computer make production such – the sounds are so unique and so original and so kind of jarring, and none of them are natural to the human ear in terms of instruments, that, you know, it's hard not to uh, – there's an arms race of, you know, who can make an even crazier sounding production. And, and I think we're kind of in that era right now. Let's go to David from Manhattan. Hi, David, you're on the air. Hi, um, I am a freelance writer. Um, I wrote for the Boston Globe and the Boston Phoenix, so I've been covering music for quite some time now. Um, and I just wanted to make a couple of observations about the state of pop music. Um, first of all, I think the difference between the landscape of pop music now and, let's say, 20-so years ago is there was always a sound that was popular and would get played on the radio, but there was definitely more musical eclecticism even within genres. Mm -hmm. But lately, the whole mindset is that the record companies are looking for the sound of the moment. And whether it's Adele or Ed Sheeran or, or you know, or Gautier, whoever comes up with that sound, that's the sound that gets played on the radio. And as a result of that, A&R people then end up looking for artists who are in the same vein. I mean, you can look at ads where they basically say we're looking for artists in the style of Lana Del Rey, and that's why we have, that's why I think the music is so homogenous. And my other observation is that the songs don't matter as much because music has lost its value. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I'm also a musician, and I know that the state of music lately has been that music is more seen as background than than ever before and so that's why artists who create music feel like their work isn't valued as much and the american public consumes music through radio and other media that's so readily accessible that it's not seen aesthetically as art as it once were thank you so much for your call uh, but is is that what's happening with the sh well american idol is kind of dead right now but uh there are a number of other shows out there that also feature singers, uh, and, and there they really talk about the singer, not the... Uh, obviously, you don't have all this synthesizer stuff in the right. background. Right, but of course, but they're also singing very sort of middle-of-the-road pop songs for the most part, uh, which I think tends to 
push things toward the center. I think the other thing I would just add to the, what the caller said, which I totally agree with, is that when iTunes broke up the album and the single became the main commodity, that really changed a huge amount because you know the album gives you a chance to sort of be an artist. You can do different songs. You can have a hit, but you can also have an experimental song. And, and critics and listeners are willing to give you a certain amount of leeway, but when it comes to a single... There isn't that kind of leeway. People really want, you know, to get to the hook, and and there and it's either a hit or it's not, and that's how it's judged, really. Now, what about Britney Spears? How did she come to the attention of record labels? So Britney Spears was uh, also on the. So Backstreet Boys was the first big American group to have songs written by Dennis Pop and Max Martin mm-hmm. be hits. Britney Spears was the set. Well, NSYNC and Britney Spears were at the same time, but. You know, uh, jo- she was on the same label as the Backstreet Boys. They were looking for a sound that had a kind of, you know, R&B element to it. And they asked Max Martin if he had a song. And actually, Max Martin did have a song, but he had written it for TLC, the American R&B group. And it was Hit Me Baby One More Time. And TLC heard it and said, I'm not going to sing that song. I'm not well, going to sing Hit well, Me Baby. Well, it sounds kind of like a, an, an S&M and m It sounds message. like an, and again, if this is the sweet. If the sweet spoke like if they, if that had been written by an American or an English speaker, it would never have been called "Hit Me, Baby, One More Time." But should we be surprised because last year the pop star Keisha filed a lawsuit against a protege of Max Martin, Dr. Luke? She claimed that she was sexually, physically, verbally, and emotionally abused by him. So you're thinking that "Hit Me, Baby" was somehow like forecast? Well, who knows what was going on in Sweden those days? Right. <laughs> I've seen some of those Ingmar Bergman films. Right. Right. I'm staying away from that one, Leonard. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Rihanna. Uh, maybe we should listen to a little clip, a clip from one of her early hits. We don't have a lot of time, but here's a little bit of "Umbrella." Well, I can't see singing that song in the shower. Ella, Even... can't you say Ella, Ella? I bet you could do it. <laughs> That's a beautiful song, actually. I I discussed how that song was made in my book for some pages. But but that is a, a part of the track and hook model, isn't it? Oh yeah, that's how it started. It actually started with that hi hat riff. That you, it's a it's it's a software sound, but you know the drum and the the snare and the and the cymbal. Um, that's how that song started, and it was just a loop. They just a guy was learning Logic in the studio, which is a software song making program, and he just started playing that loop, and that's how it all that's how it started. Now Kelly Clarkson, who uh, was more of an old fashioned singer, wound up working with Max Martin as well. Yeah, that's it. Kelly Clarkson is interesting because actually there was a backlash against the Swedish sound after the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC were big in the early two thousands. There was a real backlash against that sound. Eminem was big. It sort of was more of an extreme sound. And Max Martin couldn't get a gig. And uh, he partnered with this guy, Dr. Luke, who we just discussed. And uh, and Dr. Luke brought an indie rock sound with him. And that was the reinvention of Max Martin. And Since You've Been Gone was their first song, which I think is a, also a really good song. Uh, and that brought Max Martin back in 2004. How did Kelly Clarkson's self-written songs do in comparison to the Max Martin songs? Uh, terrible, <laughs> actually. They didn't. The album, the third album she did, which she wrote herself, sold one tenth. So, so what is life like for one of your old-fashioned style musicians? Somebody who knows how to play guitar, piano, bass, or drums. 
or let's say they're saxophone. let's say they're a session musician. That really, I mean, where are the session musicians? There's maybe one or two at the top working, while the other guys are teaching guitar to people like me. I mean, you know, because the, the 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 programs do it all. There's just far fewer jobs. A lot has been automated. A lot of song making has been automated, and the people who used to do it aren't doing it anymore. And is it cheaper to make records? Much this cheaper. Way? So since we don't have record sales the way we used to, and probably there's an awful lot of money that's lost in the process, it's not as expensive to make the record, so it yeah, doesn't hurt Yeah, but it still sells much. the tours. I mean, it, it, this is interesting. I mean, tours are totally dependent on hits because you know you don't have any hits, people don't buy the tickets to the shows. So even though it, it doesn't come out of record sales, it's still it's still huge in terms of the money that the artists make. It used to be the other way around, the early days of rock and roll. The performers performed in the Alan Freed show so that they could sell records. Right. Now right. they sell records so they can so they get a show. do yeah, a show. Exactly. You're totally right. It's totally opposite. And uh, do you see the, this going on for much longer because a lot of these studios kind of disappear? I do because I don't really see where the backlash is coming from. I mean, of course, backlashes do come out of nowhere. And, I, and historically, there always has been a backlash um, but I think uh, we're in this era of pop for a while. John Seabrook's film is called The Song Machine, Inside the Hit Factory. It is published by Norton. John, thank you so much for being on our show again. Great to be here, Leonard. It all started here.